Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Peter Lazaroff. He is the Chief Investment Officer at PlanCorp, uh, which is a national wealth management firm uh, based in the St. Louis area. Uh, his website is PeterLazaroff.com. He just came out with a new book called Making Money Simple, The Complete Guide to Getting Your Financial House in Order and Keeping It That Way Forever. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, Peter. Hey, thanks, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Let's just get a brief bio of you and how you've come to be at PlanCorp and kind of you know your, your brief history. Sure. So I have been working in the financial advice profession for the past 12 years or so. I've been at PlanCorp for a little over four years. And um, in my current role, chief investment officer for the past two, and really what that entails is developing and communicating the investment policy for the firm. So we manage a little over $4 billion in assets. And so me and my team on a daily basis do research pertaining to that. Uh, but the communication aspect of it is both communicating to clients and internally and coaching up employees and then um, doing fun stuff like this, talking to you to tell us and try to explain, uh, spread the good word of what we believe of is the right way to make good money decisions. So there are so many books of personal finance out there. Why did you think there was a need to do making money simple? I feel like this book was screaming to get out of me and I really wanted to write a book and I struggled with, should I write an all investment book that maybe could be handed to anybody and somewhat signal this is what my investment philosophy is, or should I write the book that I feel like I really want to write and I would be regretting that I didn't write if something were to happen to me. So this is sort of the blueprint that me and my wife followed. It's the blueprint that we lay out for clients for turning career success into financial success. And it doesn't have to be that complicated for anybody. But if I were to, for some reason, uh, have an unfortunate accident where I couldn't explain to my kids my views on the world of money or couldn't share with friends and family all the things that I'm passionate about, I would have really been upset. And when I decided to go down this personal finance road, as you said, there's a lot of things out there already. And I tried to put a different spin on it by highlighting more academic research in a way that isn't dry, uh, but also focusing just as much on theory as in implementation. So a lot of personal finance books for investment sections, uh, just to give an example, will focus quickly on how to get from A to B to C. And while that is there, I do think it's important to understand why you're going from A to B or why A even exists. And so trying to correct for some of the education gaps that I see on a daily basis, both inside um, our own clients and outside when I speak to other people. And as I mentioned before, this was the book I wanted to get out of me. I got some really good advice uh, from Jason Zweig of the Wall Street Journal when I was contemplating what to write. And he said, write the one that you know in your heart you'll regret not writing. And, and so Making Money Simple was born from there. Very good. So most people think of personal finance and investing as very complicated. Uh, it's almost a, uh, <laughs> hard for people to believe that you could actually make money simple. What is it that people think about money that they think it's complicated when in fact it can be simple? Well, I think there's a few things working uh, against us here with finances. The first is that there are so many different decision points, and you don't really know where to start. And even if you do pick a starting point, 
there are so many underlying choices to each set of decisions we have to make. And we just become paralyzed by all the different options. And so when I think about where I tried to point the book is to focus only on the most important decisions and then building a system that somewhat quietly nudges your finances in the right direction without ongoing effort on your part. So if you can eliminate all of the choices out there and just focus on a few and highlight the best options, that's a big part. I also think that people get discouraged by the amount of time it takes to see results. So it's a little bit cliche to compare getting financially healthy to getting physically healthy, but we all know that we should eat well and exercise regularly. But if you just go to the gym one time, you don't have a six pack. But what is interesting about finances is that you can do a 30 minute exercise a single time and never return to it again. And overnight, it wouldn't happen overnight that you see those financial improvements, but it would lead to a substantially different financial picture. And so I think people get overwhelmed. They don't know where to start. The progress takes time. It isn't, it's incremental. But the plus side is that it doesn't have to be difficult. I mean, financial success isn't magic. It's really just engineering. And so trying to put a system in place that addresses that can make it far more achievable. And then a final thing I think that gets in the way for people with making money simple in their own lives is that we are not genetically hardwired to make good money decisions. When you think of uh, our genetic structure is very similar to that of our ancestors from 40,000 years ago, um, and even 100,000 years ago, and you think if you took time to calculate the probability that a, rustle, that a rustling in the bush that you just heard was a lion, you'd get eaten more often than not. You hear a rustle, you run. And that's what our instincts teach us to do with money. And there's a complete opposite. You really need to be patient. You need to think about the future. Uh, what's fascinating is the neural patterns in our brains for saving are identical to that as giving money away to a complete stranger. And so... Uh, what I decided is you can't take the human nature out of humans. So let's build around them. And I think those are some of the challenges that people face. And I think that I address within the text. The first chapter you have is on the power of time and compounding. It's kind of an unusual way to start a personal finance book. What do you think people do not understand about the power of time and the power of compounding, both positive compounding where money is making more money and negative compounding where debt is kind of piling up on you? Well, the human mind doesn't picture exponential things very well. We're really good at picturing what one plus one plus one plus one is. But in reality, and the reason I led with compounding is that there's obviously the importance of compound interest in your investments and your savings accounts, but habits compound too. And little decisions you make at the margins, when they compound over multiple decades, turn into enormous outcomes. And part of the reason I led the book with a chapter on compounding and the power of time mixed with compounding is that throughout the book, it's a theme. Some of these things are really big and impactful. Some are really small, but as long as you have a decade or two or three or four, in some cases, this stuff can make a huge impact. And so when I mentioned we aren't the best, uh, our, our brains aren't wired to picture exponential things very well. I tried to take a number of examples to give you a greater appreciation for compounding. For example, if you were to fold a piece of paper, which has a thickness of a tenth of a millimeter, and you fold it in half, well, you've doubled the size of it. And if you fold it again, well, now you have four times as thick of a piece of paper than you did prior. But what might shock your listeners to understand is that 
by the time you've folded that, say, 42 times, the piece of paper, the thickness would go from planet Earth to the moon. And in just 50 folds, it goes to the sun. And it's really hard to think about that. Similarly, if you double a penny every day for a month, you have $10 million. And it's, it's trying to come up with these examples. I think there's a number of stories within that chapter just to give people an appreciation for both exponential power as well as really good planning. So I have some examples um, of Bill Franklin's will, for example, and how it leveraged a small gift to the cities of Boston and Philadelphia and turned into a multi-million dollar gift 100 years later. And then there's those traditional compounding examples you'd expect, but really trying to help people see that. Now, you also mentioned somewhat of the dark side of compounding. And just like investments can compound in your favor and good habits can compound in your favor, bad habits can compound in your favor and things like taxes can compound against you and costs and debts. And so trying to make people aware of both the good and bad of compounding so that as you progress through the book, it gives you a framework for thinking of decisions and the enormous impact that they might have one day. So basically you're saying small decisions and good habits lead to big results. If you get positive compounding working for you, it's a much different life than negative compounding working against you. You got it. And I think a lot of investing, for example, is about minimizing mistakes and just staying the heck out of the way of compound interest. Like, just let it do its thing. That's hard for people when they're seeing CNBC and the daily newspaper and the the latest earnings report and the constant flow of information. How do you kind of ignore all that and just let compounding work for you? Well, I'm biased in thinking you hire somebody to help you through it, but you're right. I mean, it's never been harder to ignore the noise of the market. And the market has always been noisy, but we haven't always carried personal computers around in our pocket with a stock market app that comes up. And we have not, you know, the entertainment of financial media is higher than, you know, the entertainment factor is higher than it's ever been. And tuning out that noise can be really challenging I think when you understand the importance of the long term and when you understand uh, how often markets fall, for example, it does make it easier in the moment to stick with a plan. One thing I'd mentioned earlier was it's important to know how to get from A to B to C, but understanding why you'd go from A to B or why A exists. I mean, a lot of it has to do with the fact that as you start to understand the way markets work and as you start to understand the competition that you as an investor face, it gives you a lot greater respect for how difficult it is to even earn the market return. More, not even to say beat the market. I mean, beating the market is basically impossible on a routine basis. But earning a market return is really difficult too because you have all these distractions. I think the more and more you understand of how these things work, the easier it is to be a better behaved investor. And that's really been my professional experience. And that's sort of why I've tackled the investment section to focus not just on the how, but also on the why. We'll get to it a little bit more later, but are you a believer in index funds and passive investment as opposed to active, as you say, if it's hard to earn a market return, that's a way of doing it. Yes, I, I generally am a favor, and I'll, I'll, I always try to resist the word active versus passive because I think even passive investments can be active. But yes, index funds, factor funds, um, you know, as long as it's low cost and it's a systematic rules-based approach that doesn't try to predict the future, so it's not individual stock selection or bond selection or individual sector saying that this is going to do well and this is going to do poorly. If it's rules-based, like an index fund or like a factor fund that tries to capture a value premium, for example, 
those are usually the approaches that that I favor. Very good. Okay, uh, my guest this hour is uh, Peter Lazaroff. He's the Chief Investment Officer at PlanCorp, which is based in uh, the St. Louis area. He manages about uh, $4 billion at his uh, firm. Uh, a website to find out more about him is peterlazaroff.com. And again, the name of his new book is called Making Money Simple, The Complete Guide to Getting Your Financial House in Order and Keeping It That Way Forever. We'll be back after this. When it's time to make a hire for your small business, naturally you want to find the best person for the job. Odds are that person is on LinkedIn. LinkedIn Jobs makes it easier to get matched with quality candidates who are most qualified for the position you have open. I tried LinkedIn Jobs and was amazed at how fast the perfect candidates I was looking for showed up. LinkedIn Jobs uses knowledge of both hard skills and soft skills to match you with the people who fit your role the best. People come to LinkedIn every day to learn and advance their careers, so LinkedIn understands what they're interested in and looking for, which means when you use LinkedIn Jobs to hire someone, your matches are based on so much more than just a resume. Sure, LinkedIn Jobs matches based on skills and background, but also on candidates' interests, activities, and passions. Matching lets you quickly get a group of the most relevant, qualified candidates for your position. That way you can focus on the candidates you want to interview and make a quality hire you're excited about. Customers rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering well-suited hires. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash moneyanswers and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash moneyanswers. Terms and conditions apply. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Peter Lazaroff. He is the Chief Investment Officer at PlanCorp, which is a wealth management firm with about $4 billion in assets based in the St. Louis area. You can find out more about Peter at his website, peterlazaroff.com. And he's just come out with a new book called Making Money Simple, The Complete Guide to Getting Your Financial House in Order and Keeping It That Way Forever. Welcome back to the show, Peter. Thanks, Jordan. So we talked about compound interest at the beginning. Then you talk about where do you want to go and setting goals. A lot of people talk about setting goals, but what are some specific ways that people can set 
practical goals that are actually achievable. I think you just nailed it. Practical goals that are achievable. So something that you can measure, something that has a specific timeline that's really concrete. That's what makes a good goal. And oftentimes when people are planning for their finances, they aren't doing so with a real clear end in mind. And so one of the things that I have done with my wife since the day we became engaged and do with new clients all the time is we have them go through a process of these goal planning worksheets. And there's a lot of research that shows that when you spend time visualizing about the future, you are more likely to make a better decision about the future and and place more value on saving. So uh, earlier in an earlier segment, I'd mentioned how our neural patterns think of saving. They're the same ones that think of giving money away to a complete stranger. So how can we become more intimately in touch with our future selves? In the goal process, I like to break them out into short-term goals that are five years or less, intermediate-term goals that are five to 15 years, and long-term goals that are 15 years or more. And by writing out those goals and setting a specific completion date and expected cost, and then prioritizing them. And I give some guidelines in the book for how to prioritize things from just a purely mathematical standpoint, like what is going to grow your net worth the most, but then also calling out certain research on things that is most likely to drive greater happiness uh, because we don't live in a spreadsheet. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that as you are setting the goals and assigning priorities. In fact, actually, uh, shortly after doing the book, developed um, a quiz called smartmoneyquiz.com that helps you do some of these things and identify the areas where you really ought to be focused. And so when you set these goals, then it's really easy to plan where you're trying to go. So if you and I are going to take a flight from New York to San Francisco, we would hope that a flight plan were mapped out that considers the weather conditions and the weight of the plane and other air traffic. If you just take off and don't really think about where you're going, you could very well end up in Vancouver or Toronto, just totally miss miss the, the end destination. And so goal setting is really important in part because it defines where you're trying to go. And, and once you know where you're trying to go, it's really not that hard to set up a system to get you there. And then the next step beyond goal setting is what you call where you are today. So you have a cash flow worksheet and a net worth worksheet. What's the reason to do those? So I like to think when you have filled out a cash flow and a net worth worksheet, what you can do is before you make any big financial decision, you can ask yourself two questions. One is, how does this affect my net worth? And, you know, taking an unplanned trip with friends or buying a new car, you know, that's a major purchase. You know, the experiences, those, those, there's some things that you don't get any money back when you spend on. So you go take a vacation, that's a permanent dent to your net worth. Now, however, a lot of the happiness research shows that experiential purchases have a very high return on investment when it comes to happiness and a longer lasting sense of fulfillment. Where that's trickier is something like buying a car, which for many people is necessary, but the research would suggest nicer cars don't drive that much additional happiness. But even if you're taking any sort of major purchase or cash flow decision, the first question you're going to ask is, how does this affect my, affect my net worth? And the second one is, how does this impact my ability to reach my goals? Because if you've set the goals and you know how much you need to save on a monthly basis to meet those goals, and again, the book walks you through the steps of doing this 
then your ability to reach goals is impacted by things like greater monthly expenses or taking on a debt that would prevent cash flow from going directly to one of those goals and going somewhere else. So I think they're really, they go the three worksheets together, I've internally referred to them as the core worksheets, uh, which you can get at peterlazaroff.com slash worksheets, um, as well as finding the book. But without doing those two supporting ones, the net worth and cash flow, the goals worksheet is a little bit less meaningful. Yeah. So after you've done that, you've done the goals, you've done the net worth, you've done the cash flow. You talk about creating a system for financial success. And a lot of it is kind of automating things so that the right things are automatically happening. For example, setting up money that's automatically coming out of your checking account into a separate savings account. People talk about having six to 12 months, what, what is realistic as far as the amount of savings people should set aside for emergencies? Well, for emergencies, I will say it can range between, in reality, three to 12 months. And it just depends a little bit on what type of job you have. Um, certainly, if you have a job that your income is tied to something that fluctuates with the economy, you might want to have something closer to 12 months of expenses, not income. That's a very important distinction. Uh, if you are a tenured professor or maybe a doctor where you have a little bit more recession-proof income, maybe you don't need as big of a emergency fund. Maybe it can be closer to three months. But the important thing about an emergency fund, a lot of people say, oh my gosh, 12 months of expenses. That's not something that's built overnight, nor does it need to be. The important thing is that you just make some sort of contribution to that so that it builds over time. And it does need to be prioritized when you have windfalls. So if you got a tax return, a tax refund, for example, a lot of people will put that towards savings or maybe they had a specific purchase in mind. But if you get an unexpected bonus or maybe there's an inheritance or a gift from somebody, you know, those are the ways that emergency funds get built quickly. But otherwise, you have to have a system and automating it makes it much easier. Have a system to, to build that balance over time. What are some ways people can do automatic savings? I mean, if you put money into a checking account, even a savings account today, you almost basically earn nothing. Are there ways to have it have a decent kind of yield and still make it automated? Yes, and it's easier than it's ever been before. So while I mentioned that when I wrote the book, this is a lot of the system I personally built for myself and then used with others. But, you know, a decade ago, you couldn't automate that many things. Yes, there was automatic bill pay. Yes, you could contribute to a retirement account or to some accounts, but you couldn't auto escalate your contributions. And you certainly couldn't have as custom of automations as you can today. My personal opinion is that you ought to have a different account for each goal on your short-term goal list, as well as potentially your intermediate and long-term goals, so that you're directing monies to the appropriate types of accounts. And once they reach those accounts, they get directed to the appropriate type of assets because your emergency fund belongs in cash. Because if something goes wrong, you don't want anything to happen to it. Yes, cash yields are low, but if you go to an online bank, you can get something paying um, in the 2% range. And that's certainly better than nothing, certainly better than the past decade. But if you're directing money towards an HSA or a retirement account or a 529 plan for your kid's college education, or maybe it's a short-term goal like a vacation or a down payment on a house, each of those goals are going to require a different mix of stocks, bonds, and cash. And really to bucket it all in one um, account means that you probably won't get to the most efficient allocation between those different types of assets. You talk about lifestyle creep and how to deal with lifestyle creep. What do you mean by that? 
So lifestyle creep is one of these really sneaky phenomena that sort of happens in the background of your life and you never notice. So most people get some kind of raise each year. And without a plan to save that raise, it's easy to use all the raise up by adding a few luxuries. So whether that's adding premium cable channels or buying more expensive bottles of wine or more frequent phone upgrades, nicer birthday gifts, whatever you think of, those things individually don't seem harmful uh, particularly if, as you are able to afford those luxuries, but they have a way of adding up. And before you know it, you adapt without even noticing. So again, as I mentioned, there's a lot of things in human nature that are difficult to change. And we adapt to gradual change without noticing. It's when you have to pull back on your lifestyle, if your lifestyle creep continues to grow and grow and grow, and you reach a point where you say, wow, I'm not going to be able to retire without making a significant change to my expenses, that becomes really painful. And um, there's research from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York that shows that most of your wage growth comes in the early years before leveling off mid-career and peaking in your 50s. And there's also a study from the Labor Department that shows that most of the growth comes in your 20s, and then it continues to grow to declining place excuse me, a declining pace in your 30s and 40s. So it's that's what that tells us is it's crucial to keep lifestyle creep under control when you receive those raises earlier in your career. And to do that, you need to get this system in check. And a lot of what the system I've built, by the time I'm talking about lifestyle creep, uh, you have probably put in place something that I refer to as a reverse budget and you have figured out how to automate your finances and you know where you're trying to go and where you are currently. And if all this sounds overwhelming, again, I'll remind you, I have a quick quiz that can kind of point you in the right direction called smartmoneyquiz.com to help make this a little bit simpler for you. So you're saying when you get a raise, you should not increase your lifestyle and spend it. You should save some portion of it and maybe you can spend a little bit of it, but that, that's the problem is people spend any raise that they're getting. Is that right? That is the big problem. And it's fine to spend some of it. I spend some of my raise. But when you have, occasionally you'll get big raises in a handful of years. You know, something more significant than the inflation, you know, the 2 to 3% increase in wage increase that people will give you for inflation purposes. In my opinion, most of those you should just try to save if you can. But it's when you have the big leaps in income, you really need to find a way to try to maintain your lifestyle so it doesn't get so big that you'd have to save even more just to keep up with it or work much longer just as a result of adding these little luxuries that you didn't notice at first, but when you pull them all away are super painful. Yeah, some of it's psychological. It's not just financial. I mean, when you get a raise, you feel you deserve more stuff, I guess, to spend it. Yes. So how do you you get, get over that? Yeah, and I think the psychological part, once you're already knee-deep, like if you've already full-blown had lifestyle creep, the challenge becomes, well, wait, do I not have enough monthly cash flow necessary to save towards these goals I've written down? And and I do have exercises for when that happens within the book. And a lot of it comes down to there are some low-hanging fruit areas to cut expenses. And then there's also just a matter of trying to not necessarily so much cut spending, but reprioritize spending or focusing more on the saving more than spending less aspect. But generally speaking, there are lots of strategies. It's you don't want to try to do them all at once. My theory is you go for small wins, you know, take small cuts out where they're easy to make simple changes for big savings. 
And then after that, there's an exercise that I love doing with people, not because I love to see them cut their spending, but where you go through a statement with you and your significant other, you have matching statements and you mark each line item as high value, low value, or dubious. And if you both have something on there marked as dubious or no value, well, then cut that expense. You're not going to really need it, um, particularly if it's one of these monthly subscriptions and neither of you highly value it. Very good. Okay, my guest uh, this hour is Peter Lazaroff. He is the chief investment officer at Plan Corp, based in St. Louis. Uh, he has got a new book out called Making Money Simple, The Complete Guide to Getting Your Financial House in Order and Keeping It That Way Forever. You can find out more about him at his website, peterlazaroff.com. We'll be back after this. Molecule is reimagining the future of clean air, starting with the air purifier. It's the only purifier that actually destroys allergens instead of collecting them for disposal. Molecule was developed over 20 years ago by a scientist whose son suffered from asthma and was frustrated by the fact that traditional HEPA air filters did not relieve his son's symptoms. Molecule proven technology actually destroys harmful pollutants like bacteria, viruses, mold, allergens, and airborne chemicals at the molecular level, completely removing them from the air you breathe. Molecule is your best defense against asthma and allergy attacks. When you turn on your Molecule machine, you're creating the purest air possible, combating allergy season by destroying allergens in your home. There have been hundreds of stories from parents, pet lovers, and severe allergy and asthma sufferers about how Molecule has transformed their lives. One customer even said she was able to breathe through her nose for the first time in 15 years. Molecule doesn't look like a traditional air purifier. It's beautifully designed. Think of it as like the apple of air purifiers. Not only is the technology inside revolutionary, but the unit itself looks sleek and modern. Breathing clean air can help you sleep better, too. Placing your molecule next to your bed clears the air you've been breathing, helping you get the best night of sleep you've ever had. As a Money Answer Show listener, try out Molecule for yourself. Go to Molecule.com, that's spelled M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com, at the checkout counter, enter code MONEYANSWERS to get $75 off your first order. That's Molecule.com and the code MONEYANSWERS to get $75 off your first Molecule air filter. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. 
from the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Peter Lazaroff, Chief Investment Officer at Plan Corp. Uh, based in St. Louis area. His website is peterlazaroff.com. And his book we've been discussing is called Making Money Simple. Welcome back to the show, Peter. Thanks, Jordan. We're talking about investing now. And you say there are several ways that the average investor sabotages themselves with investing. What are some of those ways? Well, I think that the primary one is that we let our emotions get involved. So generally speaking, when we follow our natural instincts, we're going to apply faulty reasoning to investment decisions. And that's because really throughout our species um, evolution, we've developed all these cognitive shortcuts that allow us to evaluate the evidence in front of us that would normally require a great deal of mental energy to make a correct decision. But rather rather than thinking through a problem, particularly when it's complicated or unclear, our brains prefer to take shortcuts. So when the market goes down, our human fear instinct kicks in and it makes us feel the need to do something. And markets go up and down. We can know that in advance, but emotionally it's really hard to stay calm and reasonable. And I think generally speaking, people know that they should want to buy low and sell high, but the data shows that we do exactly the opposite. There's um, there's a number of stories uh, within the chapter talking about human emotions, but there's one table in particular within the book that shows the prior 12 months of market performance compared to the money flowing in and out of U.S. stock mutual funds and ETFs. And generally what you see is that people are selling at the absolute wrong moment and buying at the absolute worst moment. And so I think people have heard the Warren Buffett quote, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. And so when markets are falling, we really need to be excited for paying less for shares. But in in fact, we actually tend to run away and get scared. So that's a big part. I think this emotional thing does tend to be an impediment to success in the markets. I, I also think people similarly tend to chase performance too much. So they'll look at for investments that have done well recently and want to put more of their money there than elsewhere. And there's a really good reason that there are so many disclosures out there saying past performance is no guarantee of the future. It couldn't be more true, yet um, people tend to always want to know how have you performed recently. And if it's not up to whatever standard, they don't want to put money into that investment. Some of that's due to overconfidence. Some of that's due to hurting bias where people just find comfort in following their feet, uh, their peers. But generally speaking, you know, it's really important to be highly diversified and rebalance your portfolio on a regular basis to avoid that one. And a final thing I think that people are getting much better about, but still is abundantly true is that people pay too much for their investments. Um, fees have come down quite a substantial amount, really a lot, uh, much more so in the past few years. But if you look at the past one or two decades, Fees are in a much, much different spot, but even a quarter of a percent makes a huge difference over a multiple decade time horizon. And most people who are investing, whether they're in a retirement or approaching retirement or just starting to save out for retirement, 
you probably have at least a decade, if not multiple decades. And that little difference in fees, as I mentioned on the compounding side, can really add up over time. Let's just take an example of last few months. Uh, at the end of 2018, the market was dropping really sharply, it seemed like every day. Then it's rebounded strongly in 2019. Do clients call you and freak out when the market's dropping and want to get in more aggressively when things are up? And how do you deal with that? So I feel very fortunate that most of the PlanCorp clients are well-behaved because we do an enormous amount of education and hand-holding up front. So I don't think there's been a meeting in my tenure at PlanCorp where, that I've been a part of where we didn't talk about losses, even if that wasn't the reason I was there or the primary focus of uh, the discussion. But it is so important to realize that the market uh, falls 10% on average every 12 months. And 20% on average every three and a half years. And then there's that bigger 30, 40, 50% drop at least once a decade. But when you think about that, the market should be dropping on average 10% every year. Well, then when you have a 10% drop, you say, well, Peter told me that was going to happen. And he told me what we're going to do with that. We're going to do some buying and selling that will help you from a tax perspective. We're going to rebalance your portfolio so that your stocks and bonds are in balance to deliver you the type of return you need to meet your goals without being too risky or not risky enough. And that education, that consistent handholding is one of the bigger values that people, that investment advisors provide. Now, I think advisors ought to provide a lot more than investment advice, but when it comes to investment advice, you can earn a lifetime of fees in a single bear market just by being that behavioral babysitter and being there to help people through. And if you, the, the, help people through the hard times. And if you've done a good job educating people, which I think we really do, it does minimize the amount of fear that we have with clients. I think they've come to expect the 10 to 20% drops. Earlier in my career, when the S&P 500 was down nearly 60% over the course of not quite two years, well, that was very different. I think there was a lot more panic there. And not every recession has to look like the last one that we just had. You know, A run-of-the-mill recession can be a 30% drop in the market, but either way, providing investors with education in the moment is both a way to appeal to their cognitive and emotional needs to help make the right decision. I mean, some would say since the financial crisis, the market's been pretty much straight up and therefore we've gotten complacent uh, and trees don't go to the sky and this is the longest running bull market ever and uh, you know it's got to end sometime soon. So a lot of people are saying you know, that they're, they're cautious of getting in because they don't want to be at, at the end. This is about to fall <laughs> dramatically. How do you respond to that kind of fear that people have? Well, I think when you look at market highs, if you look at the history of all market highs, roughly 75% of the time when you go 12 months out from a market high, the market is still higher. And then a lot of that's because over long periods of time, the market rises more than it falls. So much so that, I mean, when you're trying to avoid the bear markets, and there's one chart in particular that I don't know how to verbalize, shows so well how short-lived the downturns are and how disproportionately small the downturns are compared to the up markets. And so when someone's saying, well, it's new, you know, we've been doing this for so long, I don't want to get in at the top, it's mathematically best to invest your money all at once. If you're sitting on a pile of cash and you haven't been in the market, if you're just strictly playing the odds and investing is a probabilistic endeavor. So you really should, then it would be make a lump sum investment all at once. But for people who are struggling, what we'll do is we will create a schedule to dollar cost into the market over some period of time. So that helps minimize that regret. 
because a lot of the aversion we have to losses, whether they are relative or absolute losses, comes from a tendency to want to minimize regret as investors. We don't want to miss out on the upside, but we definitely don't want to get hurt by the downside. But when you just look at the data, again, of how often markets are up even at the all-time highs, it should be pretty comforting that it's okay to invest your money. Now, if you're investing money that you need within five years, then that probably should be going into bonds or cash. And if you're retiring within, say, five years, well, you have a bond allocation and a cash allocation, but your stock market allocation is still what gives you the best chance to grow your money at a rate greater than inflation and still meet your goals. Because it would be just wonderful if we could just save for all of our goals in cash and not take any risk. But very few people could work long enough or have the savings rate required to make that happen. Yeah. Now, so you're a believer in index funds. What kind of a portfolio of index funds do you have? Large cap S&P 500, small cap international. What kind of a portfolio of index funds do you put together for a client? Well, so I would actually say, and I list out two portfolios in the book, one of which uses all index funds, one of which uses something called factor funds that are a lot like index funds where you own the whole market, but instead of having the holdings weighted by their size, by their value, by their market cap, they are weighted also by their relative cheapness. So price to book, price to earnings, price to cash flow, valuation metrics such that we at PlanCorp have a long-term overweighting towards what we would call value stocks or cheap stocks. And similarly, compared to an index fund, we have an overweight towards small cap stocks versus what you just get in a plain index fund. And there's a number of ways to implement this. And depending on your tax situation or when you became a client, it might impact what funds you're in. But if you're comfortable, if all you want is the market return, we do have clients who are just in plain index funds. And a good index portfolio really only requires about three funds, especially because, you know, there's not a lot of benefit of owning just a large and a mid and a small cap index. You might as well own the total market index. It's cheaper. It's more tax efficient. Uh, But we happen to use products uh, in addition to index funds that, again, highlight these factors. Uh, We're big fans of the value factor over long periods of time. Value has tended to beat growth. Uh, but it does so because it's riskier. And so what you accept when you take on more risk as an, as an investor, you expect to be paid in the form of higher expected returns. And the same goes for small cap companies. Over time, small cap companies tend to be large cap companies, but it's because they are riskier. And so when you accept that markets are really efficient and you know there's a really high degree of competition, the thing that index funds don't do is they don't use the information and prices to deliver you higher expected returns. They simply just give you the market. They assume that active management doesn't work. What factor investing does is the same. It assumes active investing doesn't really work over time, but it does understand that the people in markets are inserting information into prices and it's just using that information systematically to deliver higher returns over time. Yeah. Very good. Okay, we're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Peter Lazaroff. He is the Chief Investment Officer at Plan Corp, based in St. Louis. His new book is called Making Money Simple, The Complete Guide to Getting Your Financial House in Order and Keeping It That Way Forever. You can find out more at his website, peterlazaroff.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth and Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth and Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Peter Lazaroff, Chief Investment Officer at Plan Corp and author of the book, Making Money Simple. You can find out more about him at his website, peterlazaroff.com. Welcome back to the show, Peter. Thanks, Jordan. So you talk about the big financial decisions at critical junctions in life. Let's just briefly go over some of the things people should really take care of. The first one being estate planning. People think, well, that's just for very rich people. Why does the average person need to do an estate plan? Yes, so many people think that. But as long as you have an opinion about what happens to you or if you have children, your loved ones at your death or at a point at which you become incapacitated or ill – then you need an estate plan. And I think there's really just five documents everyone needs. I go through these in the book as well as outline um, the mistakes that people typically make within estate planning. But just to give you a quick hit on those five documents, everyone needs a will. It's at the crux of any estate plan. You definitely don't want to have your will drafted online. You need to work with a qualified attorney who is licensed in your state. Um, A letter of instruction, which is just an opportunity to express some personal thoughts and directions that isn't captured within the will. A durable power of attorney, which authorizes someone to act on your behalf should you become physically or mentally unable to handle financial matters. Advanced medical directives, and so this can have durable power of attorney for healthcare decisions or do not resuscitate order um, or advanced medical directives. And then finally, a living trust. And this is where some people say, I don't need a trust. I'm not, you know, a very rich old wealthy family. You know, trusts are really the way that you avoid probate and pass assets efficiently from you to whomever that they're going. And those five documents really make up the core. I go into more detail within the yeah. book as well as those mistakes. The next one is life insurance. Uh, There's a lot of controversy over should you have term or cash value. Where do you come out on that? So I'm a big believer in term insurance making sense for roughly 99% of the population. Now, when you... There are uh, situations from an estate planning perspective, or if you have children with special needs, or maybe you're a business owner and there's no other way to buy you out if something were to happen where whole life or cash value insurance can make sense. But broadly speaking, the tactics that go into selling a policy that is anything other than term can be confusing. And so I try to outline those as well in the book. You talk about disability insurance. Most people don't buy extra disability insurance and they're getting it work or through social security. You think that's important that people get disability insurance? 
Yes. And this is probably where I procrastinated the most. So think about this. The Social Security Administration estimates that 91% of women and 85% of men will live to age 67. So you can work a full working career, save for retirement, take care of everybody you love without, you know, most people don't pass away. But meanwhile, the same report from the Social Security Administration projects that a 20-year-old has roughly a one in four chance, a 26% chance is what they list, of becoming disabled for 12 months before reaching retirement. So you're far more likely to become disabled during your working ages than you are to die. And while almost everybody has life insurance, very few people have disability. And a lot of that's because of the cost and a lot of people don't understand. But again, those are really crucial decisions that are not that hard to make. And then you talk about buying a house. What are some of the mistakes people make and when and how they buy homes? The biggest mistake people make when buying a home is that they don't think about all the costs that come from owning a home, particularly if you're not going to live there for at least five or 10 years. Housing is not an investment. We all learned that the hard way during the financial crisis. And a lot of that's because it's a single undiversified bet on a small geographic region in a single neighborhood. But in reality, price home prices have barely kept up with inflation over the past 125 years. And even those very minimal gains, which you know the long-term data shows is 0.37% per year after inflation, that only comes if you're pouring money into your house with maintenance and improvements. That's not exactly something you want to see with an investment. Um, but you know, again, uh, I mentioned earlier, smartmoneyquiz.com has kind of a portion on housing that can help you out if you're wondering what's the next move to make. Then you have a chapter towards the end about creating a team of professionals to help you succeed and getting a a good advisor, including the possibility today of a robo-advisor, which is more and more popular. If you're saying the book, you know, it's so simple, making money simple, why do you need uh, a team of financial advisors uh, if if the impression you give is people can do it themselves? Well, it's a great question, Jordan. And I, I'll, let me start by saying I hate when people say that, well, you wouldn't perform surgery on yourself when they talk about building a financial plan. Like Building a financial plan is not rocket science. It's not surgery, but it is a full-time job. So I lay out the steps that you can take yourself to get on your path and on your way to do it all alone. But I compare it a lot like mowing my lawn. When I had my first home, Uh, I used to mow my lawn every Saturday and it looked fine. It took about 90 minutes, but there'd be times where on like a Saturday I say, I'm just going to wait till Sunday to do it. And then it would rain and then I wouldn't have time to do it that weekend. And then it would be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I'm in the work week. I can't do it. And now my grass is all long and then it looks terrible. Um, But then I hired, but all in all, again, I got by fine. But the year I hired a professional to do it was the year that my first child was born And he was doing all the little things I had never thought of, like cutting the grass in different directions at certain uh, times in the year or cutting the grass at different lengths, depending on sunlight exposure or seeding strategically or edging. And ultimately, he did a much better job. And that's the case anytime you hire a professional. Not only are they going to do a better job, but they're also going to give you back time. And time is probably our most valuable asset of all. And it's really hard to quantify it other than I can tell you a financial advisor will give you an unbelievable amount of your time back. They'll be proactive. They won't get lazy. Things won't slip through the crack. And the little things they do 
and hiring an advisor is the last chapter in the book. The little things you do from the first chapter of the book are what compound over time. And I, again, am biased in thinking that advisor is really helpful. But if you you don't know what you don't know, and as long as you get someone who's highly qualified uh, and is always has your interest first, the outcomes are going to be much bigger than you'd ever expect. And what do you think of robo-advisors and automating this whole thing? That seems to be very popular, particularly with younger people today. Yes, I think the robo-space has addressed a clear need in the industry for a segment of people who clearly were subjected to less than a fiduciary standard for advice. So there's a large market where if you didn't have half a million dollars or a million dollars to work with a firm like PlanCorp, you'd be forced to go to someone who is whose salary is really tied to the products they sell you or how often they generate activity within your account. The robo-advisors have created a really simple solution to this. They get you highly diversified. Um, they are relatively low cost. And now a lot of them, including our own robo-advisor, BrightPlan, um, offers a call with an advisor. Now, as someone who has taken the call as the advisor uh, to sort of get a feeling for what it was, that will never replace a full-time human relationship because you know most of the people who are behind the robos doing those one-time or two-time-a-year calls, they manage four to 500 clients. They only get to look at your situation for a few minutes. They only get to talk to you for an hour or in some platforms, 30 minutes. It's not enough time to make a big difference. They'll answer a whole bunch of questions, but I think there's a real distinct place in the market for robo-advisors and for human advisors who can be proactive and deliver highly customized advice. And I don't think that either are impeding on each other's turf. I think they're just making the world a better place in giving fiduciary advice, making it more available to a broader range of people. In the roughly two minutes we have left, kind of summarize what difference it will make for people if they follow the systems that you've talked about here, what you call a system for financial success, as opposed to not working with a financial advisor and not doing what you say. So I think if you buy the book and you follow the worksheets and the step-by-step and you build up a system for savings, I think you'll be far better than if you aren't having a system for savings. You will suddenly worry less about whether or not you're doing the right thing with your money. Uh, I think that you will, generally speaking, have a lot more confidence in the decisions that you do have to make, whether they are day-to-day financial decisions or these bigger one-time events. When you hire an advisor, I think just because you know the knowledge doesn't mean you're going to put it into action. And so when you do hire an advisor, I do think that oftentimes you have someone nudging you along and being your cheerleader and helping you out when there are trying moments. And an advisor doesn't deliver their value on a quarter by quarter, year by year basis. The the benefit is lumpy and comes in big bursts. But if you're unsure if you can do this by yourself, go to smartmoneyquiz.com. It'll point out the three or four areas to focus on as well as give you some next steps to hit those three or four areas. And then that'll give you a good sense of whether or not you can tackle this on your own or not. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Peter Lazaroff, Chief Investment Officer at PlanCorp based in the St. Louis area. Uh, His book is called Making Money Simple, The Complete Guide to Getting Your Financial House in Order and Keeping It That Way Forever. You can find out more at his website, peterlazaroff.com. Thanks so much for being a great guest on The Money Answer Show, Peter. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.